Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And on today's episode, I'm talking with Alex Schultz, who is the winner and new FKT holder of the Arizona Trail Race 800 that he just completed about five days ago. Alex set a new record time of nine days, five hours, and 43 minutes, which was good enough to beat the fastest known time that was set in 2022 by Nate Gentz. Now, the route has changed a little bit from 2022, and we are going to talk about that in today's episode. Now, Alex is no stranger to the AZT. In fact, he won the 300-mile version of this race last year. And prior to that, his first ever bikepacking event was the Colorado Trail Race in 2019. So Alex has been a member of our community for a little while now. He's entered some big races and had some really big results. And it was awesome to talk to him today on the podcast. I just want to say congratulations to everybody who finished on the AZT this year. It was really fun to watch, really entertaining, but there were a lot of storylines that were taking place. A lot of people finished their Triple Crown uh, attempts this year and were successful. And so just want to say congratulations to everybody uh, on an incredible year of bike pack racing. It's been fun to watch, and hopefully we'll be able to tell some more of the AZT stories before the year is out. Now, you're going to hear me mention it in today's episode, but I am going to be doing an ITT of the AZT 300 next year, and at the same time, Brett Stepanek is going to be doing an ITT of the 800-mile version of this race. Ah, and guess what? We're going to be inviting some friends, i.e. you. So if you're interested in taking on the AZT and you would like to join Brett and I next year, I'm going to be releasing information about that after today's episode, so stay tuned for that. Now it is time to thank the people that made today's episode possible, starting with our latest batch of patrons. Unfortunately, we didn't have any new patrons this week, so I'd like to thank the 316 patrons that we do have that support our little independent podcast we appreciate every single one of you. And if you enjoy these episodes and would like to help support this work, you can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. Now, today's episode is also brought to us by my friends over at Electric E-Bikes. And let me tell you what, I am absolutely in love with my new Electric E-Bike. Whether I'm going on a quick trip to the store or just taking an evening cruise to clear my head after a long day or for a hundred other reasons, I find myself reaching for this bike time and time again. And now I want one for my whole family, uh, which makes me wonder, where would you go for the holidays if you and your whole family had electric e-bike? Well, I'm excited to tell you that electric e-bikes is making it easier for you to get an e-bike this holiday season because holiday savings are already here and Black Friday deals are happening now. So for a limited time, you can enjoy $100 off e-bikes and up to $450 in free accessories. And one of my favorite features about these bikes is that they are built with convenience and utility in mind. So getting started on your electric e-bike adventure is easier than ever. Your electric e-bike ships free, comes fully assembled, and is foldable for easy travel and storage wherever you go. But wait, there's more. Electric e-bikes just announced their new X-Peak that comes in two different models and is available for pre-order right now. 
The X-Peak is an all-terrain e-bike that's equipped to take you off-road and encourage you into the unknown. Get hundreds of dollars in free accessories with any electric e-bike purchase this holiday, including America's best-selling e-bike, the XP 3.0, and the new X-Peak. Visit electricebikes.com to find the electric model for you. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E bikes.com. And if you use the link in the bio, electric e-bikes will send Bikes or Death a little something for the referral. So... Use our damn link and then go ride your damn e-bike. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day and I gave AG1 a try because I know that Andrew Huberman supports it and recommends it and uses it and I trust Andrew Huberman. Uh, if you don't know Andrew, he has another podcast called The Huberman Lab. I highly recommend it. He is a neuroscientist and he really breaks down complex neurological and biological and physiological concepts and makes them understandable and relatable to people like me and maybe like you. And I've really come to follow him and respect him as a source of good information. Uh, so whenever I heard Andrew recommends it and he uses it, I was like, okay, I need to check this out too. Now I drink AG1 every day before my workout and it makes me feel like I'm actually doing something good for my body and I'm giving it the nutrition that it needs. We talk a lot about nutrition for bike touring and bike racing, and finding quality foods on route can be challenging to say the least. May I recommend AG1 travel packs for the nutritionally deficient bike packer on the go? If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one year of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash bikes or death. That's drinkag1.com forward slash bikes or death to take control of your daily nutritional insurance. Well, ching, 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 the bills have been paid and now it is time to get to my chat with Alexander Schultz. One thing I love about this interview is that it takes place while he's in his van. My chat with Alex is up next, but first let's have Miles Arbor kick it off with the Bikes or Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Okay, and you go by Alex and not Alexander? I go by Alex. Sometimes people call me Alexander, but uh, yeah, or my, my coaching name is Big Al, but Alex, <laughs> Alex primarily. <laughs> oh, I so badly want to call you Big Al. I like that. Well, uh, 
Big Al, Alex, and Alexander. Uh, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for joining me today. It's exciting to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, first off, like right off the bat, uh, congratulations. Um, winning the AZT 800 and setting a new FKT. And uh, since I haven't had a chance to congratulate you since we're meeting for the first time, also congratulations on winning the AZT 300 last year. Yeah, man, you're doing really well on this course. How do you feel about uh, how you did this year? Yeah, thank you. Uh, much appreciated. And I appreciate you following along during the race, too. Um, oh, yeah. I really like this of, course. It was fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, that's I, it's what I can gather from talking to people, but everybody said it was an exciting race. A lot of, a lot of records are broken. A lot of people put down some amazing efforts out there this year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's even more of an exciting year to come out with the win really, you know, but, um, not to diminish anyone else's accomplishments. Cause yeah, it's just like a record filled year on the AZT. It was, yeah, it was hard not to watch it. Right. Yeah. I, I had so many good experiences out there with the other racers and, um, I've, I've raced multiple races with everybody out there. So, um, yeah. it was just great to see everybody out there and we kind of all put each other in good spirits and, um, communicate back and forth. And it's just a really special thing to be able to share it with so many other awesome people at the same yeah. time that are doing awesome things. Yeah, it really is. It looks like a, a super amazing community around, you know, bikepacking in general, but but also and including the AZT communities, uh, especially is like seems amazing. So as the uh, has the win and, and the FKT like settled in at all for you, you've had a few days to process it. Uh, has it soaked in at all? Yeah, I mean, right. It, at first, when I finish, it's like, yeah, it hasn't really soaked in I'm surrounded by wyattbikepacking.com and other friends that are there and you know are just chatting like it's another day but um yeah once you kind of leave all that and really process it yourself it, it does feel pretty dang good it feels a little different have time to process it yeah so i i want to take a moment just to because we haven't met before and uh to introduce to the audience um i'm curious i know you're from uh, you said Minnesota, is that what you said? Michigan, Michigan. Originally. I'm so sorry. Uh, oh, is that, is that where you're, you're from? Yeah. Um, I grew up in actually lower Michigan. There's two peninsulas, right? Um, and then got out of there, went to college in the upper peninsula and I have a house up there now of, um, Marquette, Michigan, but all through my whole life, I've been spending time in Colorado, and I'd say half of my life has been spent in the Colorado mountains and half in Upper Michigan. Mm. Um, and whether that be for the skiing, the mountain biking, whatever. So through mountain bike racing in in Michigan, um, I discovered Colorado probably a little before high school, and got into the whole Colorado mountain bike scene. And it didn't take long before I was introduced into the bikepacking events. Um, one of my friends actually got me into the CTR, the Colorado Trail Race. It was kind of how the whole thing started. Um, I just feel super passionate about Colorado and the Colorado Trail. Um, and that whole passion, I guess, for the mountains and spending time in them 
on specifically the Colorado Trail, which is just by far my favorite. Um, every time I'm out there, I am enjoying the trail, um, even if I'm 500 miles into the race. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it did pretty well the first one I did. And um, it was like, well, this is really cool. When, what, what year was that? Uh, 2019 was the first CTR that I entered during. Was that your first bikepacking race? Yeah. Like second time ever bikepacking, like second time (laughs) I ever spent an overnight on a bike, like really had no idea what I was getting into. Oh, that's Um, so wild. That's a gnarly race to take on for your second event and, uh, and, or your second bikepacking, uh, trip and, your first race that's like gnarly how did you do you said you did well it was like 10th or 12th place somewhere in there like a high five day finish yeah um and i mean it was i I considered it well for my first time a high five day finish isn't isn't that great but um but for the first time i i was pretty happy with it oh heck Um, yeah dude just finishing it man is a huge accomplishment yeah, that kind of sparked the whole bike pack racing ultra distance um, passion, I guess, which is really the way I've been leaning recently in yeah. the whole bike racing scene. Um, and I I just love the course. So I, of course, the next year was it 2020. I don't know if there was a mass start that might have been the COVID year. Right. So I think I did an ITT uh, as a Denver start and lowered my time a couple, few hours, whatever. Um, and I, one year I didn't, I skipped it and or I did a mass start in 2021, skipped it in 2022 to do the Breck Epic. I did an ITT instead. Hmm. It was Breck Epic and that, it was kind of the same day. Um, and now this year I kind of had some asthma breathing issues out there that took me out hmm. and I think I got that resolved. Um, but we'll see what happens next year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'll find out. I so, uh, about you, this year. you said that, uh, you're, you're kind of living in your van right now. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like if you are a work remote person that's able to travel around and, and do these events or how you're able to kind of work in the, a little bit of that work life balance or work life race, bikepacking balance. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all, uh, it's all a huge balance all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I am an engineering based job, um, civil structural engineering. And I was actually working for a company based out of Marquette, Michigan, um, when I took off the first time when COVID happened and um, nobody was required to be in the office. And that's just kind of how it stayed ever since. Um, And then last winter, I was actually coaching Team Summit in Colorado ski racing. And so I was back and forth between the Vail Valley and Summit County. Colorado and ran into one of my old employers and actually he offered me my other job back that I quit the first time for quite a bit more money that I thought it would take to quit being remote um, and lock myself into the Vale Valley, which is very expensive. But um, 
I recently decided that that was kind of a dumb decision and I'm actually taking the remote job back that is kind of hybrid hybrid office. There's multiple offices. There's offices down in, in Denver, Fort Collins, but I try to avoid the city and stay in the mountains. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the, my home office is Marquette, but I'm hardly ever there. So, um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. I'm starting that job up uh, next week. I got to go back up to Marquette. And uh, I have other reasons to go up there, family, and to take care of my house. But um, get back to the mountains for some skiing soon afterward. <laughs> yeah, I like the lifestyle, man. It's always it's always really interesting how people are able to, you know, uh, dovetail their their passion, their interest with with their um, work and it, it takes sacrifice, but I'm curious if you consider a sacrifice, like what has it been, what's your experience been living in a van and, and being a little transient, being able to float around and, 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 and do like these races and stuff. Are you enjoying this lifestyle or does it kind of wear on you? I really enjoy this lifestyle. Um, I think it kind of goes hand in hand with the bike packing lifestyle, at least for me, um, being able to move kind of wherever the next spot is, it's like, okay, this next race is in Arizona. Like I've been in the van for almost a month now, just for the Arizona trail race, which is a huge, it's a huge effort. I mean, it's a huge effort just to get to the start line. So it kind of takes like almost a month. I mean, if you really want to prepare and get there and have everything squared away, it almost just takes like dedicating the month of October, at least for me, getting the bike ready, getting the van ready. Okay. I'm going to be in the van for this month and I'm going to do this race. And it's kind of the same thing for CTR, but maybe a little less. So, um, and I, I'm talking about mostly CTR and Arizona trail race, but I do a lot of other, um, I guess you'd call them shorter races, but the NUE series, national ultra endurance series. Um, and, uh, like the Mohican 100, Telluride 100, and I kind of just take the van to the next race location you know, as soon as I can or when it makes sense. And um, that's the lifestyle and work from there and get yeah. ready for that race. And just, I really like, I've come to love those areas that I go to. Like Telluride, I spent a weekend, I think, before and after the race. Um, so I just kind of go to the next good spot, like where the riding is good. Yeah. And I just come to embrace that. What a really cool thing, because I mean, your cost of living is going way down. You're able to hang out and tell your ride and, you know, and actually probably afford it. Right. Um, right. and enjoy tell your ride and you're getting ready for your races and you're working and making money. So yeah, it sounds like a pretty, pretty great thing. Just add two kids and a dog to your situation and then let me know how, <laughs> how, how you like it. <laughs> Yeah, we, we might be doubling the size of the van at that point yeah, <laughs> or throwing yeah, a trailer uh, in. Absolutely. So, like, um, yeah, I'm getting a better picture of you. And I'm curious, like, um, I mean, you've been on this journey for a short period of time, uh, specifically like the bike pack racing part of it. But it sounds like you've been an outdoors person for a long time. And um, I'm, I'm curious for you with bike pack racing specifically, are you, are you looking at it as just something you pursue for fun or are you, um, are you really motivated to be like an athlete and, and get records and win races or, you know, what are your kind of goals and, and driving motivations behind like what, what you're doing, you know? 
I guess in anything I start, I'm always pretty motivated to do well. Like, let, let's do as, as well as you can, right? But when I start a race, I'm not saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to win this race or I'm going to go set this record. Like, there's just so many things that have to come together that have to go right in order for that to happen. And I guess it sort of happened this year on the Arizona Trail. Um, felt so strong in the last three days, which was kind of key. But um, I'm, I am I'm motivated to lean more to the bike packing side from here on out. Um, I enjoy all types of bike racing, from fat bikes, snow bike racing up there in Upper Michigan. Um, I did a lot of fat bike racing in Leadville uh, last winter. Um, so I, I just enjoy all types of bike racing, but I guess I, that's, I will say that's the right answer. That, Bikes or death, all of them. It's <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, right answer. There you go. <laughs> um, but I will say that, especially with this and um, recently, I, I really embraced the bike pack side of things, and it's just kind of like uh, maybe I'll use the skiing analogy. For me, it's like you can have a good day at the resort skiing it's like okay there's a little bit of fresh snow but like having like that two foot powder day is kind of like what it's all about and for me it's kind of like okay like all these other races are just kind of like just the fluff like these are okay these are fun but then the bike pack side of things is like okay this is my two foot powder day like this is just like an incredible thing like i feel super passionate about this this is like what it's all about like it yeah. all just builds into this like Arizona trail or Colorado trail, hopefully like to divide in the future, soon in the future, it's a big one to make work, but, and there's a lot of other bike pack races that interest me like pinions and pines in Northern Arizona. That's on my list. There's others I'd like to put on the list. It's just, some of them are so huge and they're such huge efforts. It's just like, when am I going to fit these in with work and everything yeah. else? Yeah. It's a big hurdle. Yeah, so I'm curious to know if you've thought about or have any thoughts on what it is that draws you to bikepacking specifically. You know, what what makes it the two foot powder day for you? We we do see this a lot. Like once people like people who are adventurous, who are in all sorts of sports, like outdoor adventure sports. Um, once they find out about bikepacking, it's kind of like, okay, this is what I want to do. This has all the components and, you know, so I don't know Have you thought about that. Like what is, what is it about like bikepacking and racing in this format that really appeals to you? I think the do it yourself motto, when it comes down to all these bikepack races, they're self-supported. Mm -hmm. Um, you get it done for, for you and yourself. Like you don't take outside assistance. And if you really embrace those rules, like, I think you get a ton out of it. And it's like, wow, I like did all of this myself. I covered all of this terrain, fed myself, took care of my bike, like got myself to the finish line, like didn't rely on anybody else. And that's like the roots of the whole thing. Um, and I just really like that I can handle all of these situations, I guess and kind of bring it all together and like still be in a good mood and make good progress on the bike, yeah. I think is like the fundamental of it. And then like, there's just, you cover so much terrain, like the Arizona trail, like 
desert, super tech, technical, techie riding, steep, rocky descents, like, and then you go up into the mountains and you're in this like alpine trail and then you descend off the mountains, you're back into the desert and it's just, you cover so much and see so much and you power yourself the whole way. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've also noticed, um, that this sport seems to attract a lot of more engineer type minded people. And I often wonder if it's like the overall puzzle of, of it, you know, from health and nutrition to the, to the maps, to the resupply, your gear, like everything has to be, it's a one big puzzle. And the only way to you know, it only works when everything comes together, right? Or, you know, you could get yeah. a massive flood and it would take out, a, you need Noah's Ark to get out of there. But aside from <laughs> an act of God, you know, I mean, yeah. it's a big puzzle that you just have to figure out. Right. I, I That's, yeah, it's got to be part of the draw too. I mean, definitely the engineer mind, um, just always trying to figure it out. And like, when it's figured out and you feel good and like things are just, going amazing out there like feeling good is just such a, a puzzle to put together like how do i feel good on this segment because when i feel good like i'm enjoying myself and covering so much ground so much faster and just making sure you take care of yourself to feel good i kind of yeah. knew i had to do that on the azt and like i just felt good and yeah that's a great way to put it. I often say that for me, for me at least, like comfort is is the number one priority. If you're comfortable, like you're happy, you're in a good mood, you're pedaling faster, like everything is better. Um, and so if like, I like the way you put it, like you're just trying to be comfortable like the whole time. You're trying to solve that pu puzzle of like, how can I be comfortable? How can I be enjoying this right now? And the more you can solve that puzzle, the more you're just gonna enjoy your time out there, right? Right. Like, yeah, exactly. And like, I tend to really just enjoy the trail. Like when I'm riding the trail, well, like I love descending hard and like, if I can keep descending hard and riding technical trail fast, like I'm just even more stoked about what I'm doing. Yeah. So, um, the AZT last year, you, you signed up for the 300, um, was it always your plan to kind of do the 300 first and then do the 800 curious why, you know, was there any reason why you didn't just go ahead and, and try the whole thing the first time? Or I don't even know if that was your first time to be honest. I just assumed. That was my first time on the Arizona trail was last year in the 300. Um, yeah, I mean, I really wanted to try something other than the CTR, the Colorado trail race last yeah. year. And I hadn't done much other than that. And I really enjoyed it on the Arizona trail last year. And my idea was, is, you know, exactly kind of what you said, do the progression of the 300 and then do the 800. So I went ahead and signed up for the, eight, the 300 last year and was like, okay, like I'll do a little bit of research, like enough to get me to the finish line and <laughs> have a general idea where the water is. Oh, uh, for real? Yeah. And at first time ever touching the AZT, sort of, I, I hadn't realized that I had touched it till I was already out there. I'll, mm. I'll get to that. But um, 
did well enough to be considerably ahead of the field um, pretty much the entire race. Well, me and one other racer were kind of going, we were pretty close, but um, ended up pulling it off. But uh, there's a key water fill up at the Gila River at the ADOT spigot. And I had just no, I didn't research the last 40 miles of the race. I was running out of time. I was like, whatever, it's the last 40 miles. Like, I'll just slog through it. And oh boy, like, <laughs> I I think you're familiar with the the climb out of the Gila River and up to pit, the Rain Collector, Martinez Canyon, and over to Picket Post. I've never done it, so I'm actually doing an okay. IT. I'm actually doing the 300 um, as a spring uh, thing. I'm actually going to be announcing it on this episode, but Bikes for Death is going to host like a spring group start ITT or whatever um oh nice yeah this coming year and so yeah i'm very interested in the 300 and uh nice. <laughs> because i'll i'll be seeing it for the first time i've ridden in that area around tucson and stuff it's fucking beautiful uh but yeah first time it'll be my first time on the azt nice yeah the first 300 is it's so much fun i love that riding there's so much technical desert riding and yeah you go into the catalina mountains mount lemon and everything kind of changes it's yeah it's awesome Anyway, yeah. this is the Gila River, kind of 260 miles in or so. Um, you come out of those Tortilla Mountains down to the ADOT spigot, down to the Gila. And there's like a key water fill up. You can't miss this spigot. And I just had no idea it was there in the 300 last year. And it was so hot down in the Gila River. It's one of the lowest points of the course. And you're just going up and kind of up and down, up and down through this river valley. And it's rocky, a bit technical. It's just all exposed right in the sun. I was out of water and was eventually like, well, shoot, like I need to like find access to the river. And I filtered out of a Gila, which then everybody made fun of me for afterward because drinking out of that thing is nasty. But just filtered a little bit because it was so nasty um and started my hike my the first bit of hike a bike up martinez canyon a lot of it is is rideable but mm. um the first little bit's pretty rocky two track from the river it, and i was like okay i'll have enough whatever and got just halfway up the thing and was just so dry um was out of water for like two three hours and it was just terrible and then i get to the top of martinez canyon and i'm like looking around like i've been up here before like I, this is totally like familiar like i was there's a rain collector up here somewhere i was like mm -hmm. relieved i was like i had been there like 10 years ago in high school like riding with Holy. a buddy and i was like i didn't i can't believe i've been i this is like so familiar i know there's a rain collector and i got to the spot and you can kind of see the rain collector up there and i was like oh thank god and like wow. it was such a haul just to get to the rain collector but i made it Got some water, finished the last like 10 to 15 miles to the finish. Um, but yeah, wow. it turns out that I had ridden from the picket post trailhead before and I didn't even know where I was in like high school or something. Yeah. Um, when did you find out about the, uh, the water spigot that you missed or the key water spot? Oh, talking to one of the guys at the finish that were waiting for me. There were five, six guys there or something. Like, well, you missed the, the spigot? And I'm like, what spigot? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was like an example of a mistake. There were other mistakes I made last year, but 
just mistakes you really wouldn't want to make when you're going for a, a smooth 800 run. Well, so, I, yeah, that's a great segue. Actually, I wanted to ask you next, um, you know, what did you learn from that 300 that you changed or you did differently or that helped prepare you going into this year? So very topical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are other things like that. That was the main one. Did yeah. you change your bike setup or anything? Like it had to help you, you know, prepare training wise. Like, yeah. Did it, did it help you? And, um, and what did you change or do differently to prepare for the 800? So, yeah, I rode a different bike this year just because it was, I needed another bike. Um, I liked what I rode the Epic Evo specialized Epic Evo, but, um, I knew that I kind of wanted to lean on the side of more travel and stock the bike comes 120 in the front, 110 rear. I bumped it up even before CTR this year, um, to 130 in the front. And I just think the extra cush on your hands and whole body with the 130 is just worth it. It came with a regular Fox 34, so I was able to put the longer travel in, not the step mm-hmm. past for. Um, and I, I knew of, I was going to want that on the AZT. What What are your thoughts on running um, like front suspension, like a, a hardtail versus uh, full suspension? I mean, we're seeing a lot of we see a lot of full suspensions, and I don't have a full suspension bike, so I'm like, crap, do I need to get one? <laughs> I pretty much ride my full suspension everywhere. And to me, maybe it's my engineering mind. I'm always like this suspension works so well. Like why wouldn't I want to ride this like everywhere? And I like to descend really hard. Like that's what keeps me stoked about these races is just bombing these awesome descents. Um, skier in you talking. Yeah, it is bombing, (laughs) bombing mountains, dodging trees and cactus and shit. Yeah. Yeah. The cactus definitely kicked a couple of those and that hurt, but, um, (laughs) the middle of the night. Um, so I'm very like toward the full suspension side. I can't on this course, like if you're just doing the first 300, we would definitely go full suspension. Like there's so much trail. There's not really any detour there around the wilderness areas. If you're going full 800, I could see more um, hardtail side of things. But like for a fast time or just enjoying yourself on the first 300, I would always go like around that 100 mil to 120 mil travel rear bike with a 120 to 140 front is would be my ideal setup last year on the Right. 300 i rode an ibis ripley with a pike on the front 140 and the rear 120 and that was awesome in the 300 all right you just sold you just made a bike uh, sale for a bike shop we'll see what wh- who gets <laughs> maybe i'll get a bunch of calls after this and someone will give me a good deal on a bike go uh, go into the kind in edwards <laughs> colorado <laughs> oh is that oh you got your your repping yeah you got your shirt on those, is that uh, your those, bike shop yeah, those guys are awesome. And ski shop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh what else? Anything else did you change or any other ways that um having that first experience uh helped prepare you for this year? 
Yeah, I kind of just knowing what was going to be out there, like it was so hot the first three, four days of this race, like over people were posting pictures of like over a hundred degrees and I've never been this hot in my life, like climbing, um, Molino basin before the Catalina highway, climbing up to that and then back down, but just so hot, like, oh my God. I thought I was melting. Like I thought I died like 27 times. Like <laughs> I'm laughing, but in the moment, I know that's actually really scary. That heat ex- exposure is no joke. Oh, it was, it was like the worst. So just kind of knowing what was coming, like I left Tucson with eight and a half liters of fluids. Um, and it still wasn't enough. Like I still had to use the Molino cash, which you're not really supposed to use caches in this race. There were a couple that I used that like we had, I, everyone I think pretty much had to use, mm. but, um, there's a lot of water out there where you, when you're on a bike, you really don't need the caches, but definitely um, use can the you, Molino cache. Can you touch on that? I'm actually, I'm just to clarify, what is that rule on using the caches? Obviously you said some people did, so it's not like a firm rule. Like what is the, what are the guidelines there? Yeah, so I guess first and foremost, um, don't die out there. <laughs> uh, so Two use the up. water if you need it. <laughs> but if it has somebody's name on it, or if it says like AZT hiker or something in the cache, like absolutely do not use it. There's water in there that is not labeled and some that just say public water. I think there are 58 gallons of public water at Molino, but that's because oh. it was a key one and people knew the race was going through um now there were others like um in the canelos or somewhere where there's like tanks and spigots and i had a filter on my hydration bladder so i just filled up at like cot tank was in the canelos um and then you like maybe top off at the cache like i topped off at some of them but don't like drain especially like if the whole race is going to come through don't just drain the cache for the hikers um just take enough to get through and just kind of be courteous of it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That's a good rule and keeping everybody safe out there. I was looking at your, um, your race times between your first year on the 300 versus your, your, uh, your time on the first 300 of this year's race. I don't know if you've looked at that, but you were, I think about 23 hours slower this year on the first 300 miles. And one thought I had, or I had a couple of thoughts, um, you know, heat was, was a thought like, um, I'm actually impressed with all the results because of the heat. That's one of the big things that we were hearing yeah. about at the beginning of this year's race. So, um, did the heat slow you down this year or, or do you think the slower time is more a factor of just a different race strategy? It's a longer race. You're going to need to pace yourself. It was all of it. Um, I had a ton more gear. This is the heaviest setup I've ever taken in any race. Like all my winter, pretty much winter riding gear because it was so cold uh, after the North Rim on the North Kaibab Plateau. I knew it was going to be cold and just keep moving is always the key. Take the gear if you think you're going to need it. Um, I had rain gear because there was actually rain in the forecast and it actually didn't end up raining that much. But the rain gear always serves as another layer. Um, just, it was also a longer race than I usually do. So more gear was required and more food than ever. Cause 
Um, some of the resupplies were a bit further out, further space than I normally have. So just yeah. a really heavy setup too than the 300. The 300, I didn't plan on sleeping. I didn't really take a sleep system. Took like a couple naps when I did the 300 effort, but it was pretty much one huge push. Um, this year I had a whole sleep system, just a ton more gear, but yeah, the heat too, the heat was way worse than last year, but it also made the trail condition better. Less cat claw, less kind of overgrowth on the trail. Mm. There's a lot of prickly cat claw sometimes in the first 300. Well, after that too, there's some, but the yeah. trail condition was really good compared to last year. It rode a lot better. But the main yeah. thing was actually something you didn't mention, and um, the course kind of changed. The 300 and the 800 are a little different now. The 800 does what's called the lemon push, and it's spelled with a C in there in the push because yeah. it goes around that push wilderness, and that's how it's spelled. Um, so instead of riding the highway like the 300 does, the 300 hits Bolino Basin, does prison camp there at the bottom, and then you start going up the Catalina Highway to Summerhaven to the Sunset Trail. And it's quite a bit of highway that the 300 takes, um, probably the most pavement in the whole race. Hmm. And there's not much. The 800 now, instead of shooting up the highway after prison camp in Molino Basin, we stay on the trail and we go up Bug Springs, which is a pretty famous descent in Tucson. And it's pretty ledgy. And you start getting into these two, three foot ledges that you're like heaving the bike up and then it goes up Green Mountain, the next um, kind of famous descent in Tucson. And it gets even more ledgy, I'd say like upwards of three foot ledges and somewhere you're like, some I had to like set the bike up and like figure out how to work myself up this thing, this like rock face crop outcrop. And it was at that point where I started getting these terrible cramps, um, just weird cramps in my calves that I've never really had before in a race. And it was like, it was what, day three, almost day three, day, end of day two, end of day two in the heat, just pushing hard. And I'm sure it was just lack of electrolyte. Lack, it was just so hot, hottest I've ever been in my life, using different, kind of different muscles to do this lemon push. Where you're yeah. pushing your bike up this stuff. Um, so I actually had to sleep for 10 hours that night. Like I knew I just had to lay down as soon as I could. It, it was like the second time I fell over on the trail, literally fell over from the cramps. Um, and, and late was on the ground, I think nearly 12 hours and slept maybe nine, 10 of those. Wow. Um, and made a huge recovery and felt great the next day and pretty much felt great ever since then the rest of the race but it's what about what mile would that have been at that you kind of <laughs> crashed for the second time or fell down for the second time and just stayed there for 12 hours 140 150 okay i think and so he didn't he didn't change it for the 300 this year as well it's only the 800 that's gonna do the lemon push Yes, and the reasoning is that, well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, the Highline Trail by Pine to the north that the 800 does, they have redone that trail, and it, it mm. rides awesome. It is one of my... Oh, he redone one it. Of, 
one of yeah they redid it and it rides okay. incredible now and apparently it was a lot slower before um so in order to try to make the times comparable year to year um he had to add make the trail harder um somewhere else so i guess oh, okay the lemon push kind of makes up for that time difference how interesting um to an extent and then the other reasoning was like, well, if the lemon push is too hard, then maybe the Grand Canyon is too hard. So we, <laughs> they, they just kind of said that. A bunch of awesome single speeders did it last year um, right. as kind of the preliminary, and now we do part of that route. And I agree. Um, I mean, I, it's great to try to get the thing I like about the CTR is you can compare it year to year to year. The AZT has changed some year to year to year. So trying to keep the route more comparable in time in results, I guess, is good. Like if they're, the trail is going to get faster somewhere in the north, like, yeah, yeah. make it harder somewhere else. And yeah, it's interesting. It's cool. So this, go ahead. Oh, it's, it's cool. The lemon push is, it's something. It's, <laughs> it's, it's something. I'm, I'm so not it's interesting. It, did you, th do you have any sense to whether or not it was harder this year or whether it was easy? And if that contributed to your time, I will say that I had a much harder time getting to the finish of the 300 than I did last year. But that, I mean, it's due to a number of factors. Like we talked about the heavier bike, the heat, now the lemon push, the lemon push was huge, a huge time suck, especially because of the cramps I had. I'm sure I wouldn't have had those cramps if I was just pedaling up the highway using normal cycling muscles. Um, it was also rode a lot better this year. It was less overgrown. So that was a helpful factor. I don't know if that, all the negative factors, I think outweighed that helpful factor of the trail being in better shape. But, um, I don't know. It was just, it was hard. Like it, well, that's, a, that's an en another interesting <laughs> point. Whenever you're talking about, especially like these long races and, and looking at year to year is the trail is going to be different every single year. It's always going to change. Weather's going to have an impact. And so it's, it's never going to be a one for one. Like this year was identical to this year. And you know, there's always going to be factors at, at play. So, right. Right. Like thinking about weather on the CTR, like weather on the CTR can be such a huge influencer. Like if you have yeah. rain out there, if you don't have rain, just a huge factor. Yeah. Um, I want, oh, I know what I wanted, what I wanted to ask you. I'm very interested, mostly, uh, recently I did a, did an attempt of a route in Texas that was 475 miles long and I, I didn't complete it. And a big, big factor for that was the heat. And I grew up in Texas and um, have dealt with heat my whole life. But like, I don't know, now I'm 43 and I feel like I'm struggling more as it gets hotter. And I'm wondering, like, did you have any tactics that helped you endure the heat from this year? Or did you just endure it and suck it up and keep going? Like other than taking a 12 na hour nap, I guess that's one good tactic is his rest and recovery. <laughs> yeah. Um, sort of, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of experiences, bad experiences in the heat in my past in any form of bike racing. 
And I think I've come to learn like the line that I have to draw where I can't push any harder than this. Like this is it or my stomach's going to go haywire or I'm going to cramp or I'm not going to be able to eat or something's going to happen or I can't go any harder than this. So, and I don't really have a way of like knowing that other than I just know by feel like this is how this feels like it's not like a certain heart rate or certain anything. Like if I go harder than this, like things are going to get bad. So keeping that in mind in the first hundred miles, um, I just knew that I couldn't go past that point. It's like, okay, it's just ride further into the night and trying to make up for maybe the sleep deprivation later on in the course, which I did get a hotel in superior to try to recover from the first three days uh. of heat. Okay. Um, just cause I knew my body was going to need it. Like it was just so hot. And I was like, if I can feel good and move faster later, like it's going to pay off. Right. Yeah. That was kind of the strategy. And I, you know, every, every other fill up water fill up was electrolyte that first day. And then the second day, like every single one, I put electrolyte mix in as much as I right. could and like still wasn't enough the salt deposits on the jersey were insane like the just everything was white like i never you could like flick the shirt and just the, the flaky off. salt would come off it's just Gnarly. nasty and just yeah yeah i think that's when i actually i know that's one thing that really screwed up my attempt was uh i completely forgot to bring electrolytes and there's no water resupply for the first like 120 miles on that route and by the time i got to 120 i was just i was i didn't recover very well so electrolytes uh that's that's an easy one to remember i should be remembering that what did you um what did you do to train what is are you do you have a training program what are you doing to get ready for let's say specifically azt 800 how did you train uh if you do have any type of training program what does that look like for you so i i do have a general amount of hours i want to hit every week for training um and i'm not incredibly structured i'm not like okay this day is two by twenties or this day is this heart rate minimum. I kind of throw that in. Like I have a few routes in the Vale Valley where I'll say, okay, this is a good 20 minute effort. Like I'm going max effort up this climb. Um, and then I'm hitting some awesome single track on the backside of Vale or something afterward. Um, so like, I guess I try to hit as many of these hard climbs as I can and then just keep it technical. Like keep it on trail. Like all of my training is on the mountain bike. I don't even own a road bike and I probably would if, if money and, and everything wasn't a factor. You had a bigger band. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Storage is one of them. Um, I would totally benefit from just miles on the road, but also what keeps me passionate about it is these awesome trails that we have in Colorado and just hitting them all the time. And it just so happens that all these bike packing races are pretty much all on the trail and technical trail. So all of this mileage on trail, especially on the Arizona trail, I think it suited me well because there is so much trail. And if you can just flow through these technical portions, kind of like, 
slow, I, I guess, ride them well, um, you're going to be so much faster. And it just kind of comes as like second nature to me to ride this hard stuff um, and enjoy it just because that's what I like to do. And that's what I do as my like regular training. Granted, there are a lot of sustained climbs in Colorado and I put in hard efforts on those climbs, but then I really, really enjoy the descents. Yeah. Um, when I was uh, preparing for this episode, I was looking through your Instagram and I saw one video. I thought you had hiked to the top. It was a 13er, um, I believe in Colorado. Uh, and then you, I, you panned down a little and I saw a bike tire. I'm like that dude, uh, rode his bike all the way up there. Like that's, that's training. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're talking about the one I, I actually climbed Mount Albert with the bike, which is the highest 14er in Colorado. Um, with the bike on my back with my Grand Canyon portage set up to oh, I didn't train see that and get one. ready. I okay. saw it was 13 it two. It was, yeah, it was, I think it was like a fat bike or something or a mid fat. Oh yeah. Was that was, uh, two. yeah, that was in the mosquito range, um, between Fairplay and Leadville last winter. I was eyeing, yeah, I was eyeing that up for a while. I was actually living at about 11,000 last winter. Um, doing a, a dog sitting gig actually for this woman that wasn't at the house very much and living there for free um, and doing my engineering remote job from there and coaching Team Summit, um, mm -hmm. mostly at Copper Mountain and Breck. But just because I was on that side of Vale Pass, I'm very much a, a Vale, vale side of the, of the Vale Pass kind of guy, but <laughs> was in Summit County um, last winter a lot, but for the Colorado people that know. Uh, anyway, yeah, I was living right by that mountain and um, was eyeing that up. And, yeah, I was like, I'm going to go right up to 13 in whatever, January, February. A lot of it was rideable because it was so wind, windy exposed up there. Um, and then it was a killer descent on the way down on the fat bike. That was fun. Yeah, that's some... That's my kind of training. Well, if I had that available to me, but that's a lot better than hopping on a trainer uh, for hours and hours. I like that training program. You mentioned um, you try to, there's like an hour goal or an hour mark that you try to hit. About what is that, if you don't mind sharing? Oh, um, I guess in the winter, like I'm trying to ride minimum nine, 10 hours on the fat bike. Um, and I do all of my riding outside. I don't have a trainer or any sort of trainer set up. I just, there were a lot of five degree days and fair, fair play. Colorado is a cold place. And that's where I was last winter, but, um, still like sucked it up, got the heated socks, um, got my two hour rides in and did it. But then it ramps up in the spring. There were a lot of, I go from a 20 hour week, which was pretty huge down to like 12 hour week was becoming small in the spring and late summer. Hmm. And then probably on average 15 hours a week. Yeah. Yeah. Very solid. Um, yeah. let's get into this year's race. It was an exciting one. How are you feeling, uh, going into this year? Like, were you feeling hopeful? Did you, uh, let's ask you, let, let me ask you this as well. Like, what goals uh, and or aspirations did you have going into this year's race? I, after a disappointing CTR, my goal was to finish and enjoy myself and feel good. 
Mm. Um, and if that results in a good result, then sweet. I really didn't have any other goals than that, than to make everything go smoothly. And I was just so bummed about um, not finishing the CTR that I'm like, I just need to finish was basically what it was in the end. Yeah. Did you, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what I was going to ask is like what preparations or what strategy strategy did you have in place to, to be able to finish? Like, did you over prepare? Did you make sure you knew where all the water spigots were? Like, you know, that kind of stuff. You're like, I just want to finish this thing. I just want a good run. I definitely put waypoints in my Garmin e-tracks well, in the GPX file as, Hey, there could be water here. There's definitely water here. Um, I also kind of had it mapped out in my brain, kind of exactly where these key water places were and a general layout. Like I studied the route after the 300 pretty well. Like I knew how far the resupplies general idea where they were, um, where it would be a good idea to get extra water. Um, Suara Lake before the four peaks climb was definitely one of them. Like, I think I had all of these like key spots pretty well in my mind and I, I didn't have it down to a T, but, um, just thinking back on it, like I had it down pretty efficiently and kind of knew exactly what I had to do when I got there. Speaking about your efficiency, you mentioned that this year you had a pretty dialed, uh, sleep kit, um, or you actually had a sleep kit this year, which is on the 300, you weren't really, you didn't do much sleeping. Uh, what was your system? So I have a 30 degree quilt, which I wouldn't have gone any less than a 30 degree bag or quilt. Um, and I, this year I took an SOL sole bivy, which it was, it's a little bit thicker than my more waterproof bivy that I usually take on a, say a wet, a race that's going to have more weather or usually a wet race. Um, but it's a little warmer than that more waterproof bivy. And I knew it was just going to be crazy cold um, after Flagstaff, and I was going to appreciate that warmth. So the bivy's a little bit heavier than the other one, but um, I knew that I needed it. And the quilt is, I figured there was quite a bit of, I, I do like the full sleeping bag for the little bit of padding you get, because I don't take a, a ground pad hmm. underneath you. But I was like, hey, there's like enough sandy spots in Arizona or like there's a lot of rock and a lot of hard places. But it was like I can probably find enough sandy spots where it's like soft enough and like it's sand is a little bit warmer than like regular ground, I feel like. Um, and I did. I found quite a few sandy spots that were good to sleep. And um, I really don't see a need for me to take the full sleeping bag. I don't need the bottom part of it. Um, the quilt still kind of, I can still kind of wrap it underneath me a little bit and sleep on my side and get a little bit of cushion and so dead anyway, that it just fall right asleep. <laughs> but were you able to stay warm enough? That's my question without a pad. I mean, the sand might be a little warmer, but can't be that much warmer. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was a ton, but I guess I had, so with all of my clothing on, I had warmer socks knee warmers, rain pants, down puffy jacket, a merino wool base layer that I didn't ride in, that I only slept in, rode in it the last day. But yeah. 
kept it like nice for sleeping in and then a rain jacket that I could put on top of that to break even more wind. But I only used that the last day when it was really cold to kind of like an extra windbreaker over the puffy. I just slept in the puffy, the merino wool, the knee warmers, the arm warmers, the pants over the knee warmers, the wool socks, my extra pair of socks. And I, I wasn't cold sleeping at all. I just didn't want to, I was four, between four and 6 a.m. and time to start riding. I didn't want to get out. <laughs> <laughs> Probably for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the, that's the truth. Or I guess that's the rest of that answer is the sleep system really includes like, yeah, your bivy and your quilt, but also like all these other layers that, you know, make up the system. So, yeah. um, let's see here. Let's get, I want to start at, uh, I think like Reddington Pass. That's a pretty significant um, is it called Reddington Pass? I know Reddington Road leads up to Reddington Pass. Is that what it's the common vernacular is for that section? Uh, it comes at about mile 150 on the route. And notably, um, I wrote down the stats. It's like a 41 mile long climb with 8,300 feet of vert. Um, and it's on the 300. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to hear about like that section and what that's like and what to expect and how it went for you. Yeah, uh, I guess first of all, maybe I misspoke in the mileage I stated earlier where I slept then. If that's 150, then I probably slept around 170, 180 that time when I had to recover 10, 12 hours. Anyway. Um, I think the top of it is 150 if, I, if I'm right, if I looked at the map okay. correctly. <laughs> I had it off a little bit then. Um, yeah, I guess Reddington sucked. <laughs> Mostly because I carried eight and a half, a ton of water out of there, a ton of food. Um, the bike was just so heavy and it was already hot at that point. By the time I left Tucson, I got a little resupply, a little bit off route at the gas station there and then headed up Reddington. Um, so much, so much water. And I still, still used it all every last bit of it. But yeah, it's, you kind of go up the road. Reddington Road, it turns into dirt out of Tucson. The sun's already coming up. It's hot. I don't know. It was like 9, 10 a.m. I was with the um, one of the other racers, Philip. But we were riding and then kind of goes off um, onto some single track off the road a little bit. You meet back up with the road. You go back up the dirt road. It's kind of bumpy, chungry, pretty steep. You kind of top out. And I'm not sure Redding, where Reddington Pass exactly is. I know it's Reddington Road, but the road definitely keeps going. But we go off of that road onto Chiva Falls Jeep Trail. And this is part of that whole um, wilderness national park detour. Mm. Um, and Chiva Falls is just this chundery, rocky, like Jeep trail, like pretty, pretty decently gnarly Jeep trail. Like my, the rig I have would, I would struggle on it, but. And it, it's kind of pretty hard riding, too. Um, we kind of get off of that, meander some other two-track, back to the AZT, the Balada section of the AZT. Maybe I'm pronouncing that right. Bioida, Balada. Um, that's like Italian trap area. And you kind of ride the single track back to Reddington Road. Um, and that section gets really hot. Not a lot of shade, tons of sun, um, exposed it's really fun riding. It's technical, rocky, steep ledges. Um, 
little bit of hike for me. I can ride most of it and I enjoy riding most of it, but there's some pretty technical sections, especially with a loaded bike. Um, and then you kind of cross Rennington and it's the same Bolada Boyda section. Um, or maybe it doesn't change to Boyda till after Reddington and before that's Italian trap. But anyway, ride that section toward Milagrosa trail, which is a pretty famous trail in Tucson. Um, really awesome to say you ride past Milagrosa. Um, and it just stays techy a lot, most of the time. And you kind of climb out of there to toward Molino basin. Um, and then descend once you top out of this thing, it's gotta be. 1500 foot hike a bike maybe a little less than 1500 mm. maybe closer to a thousand but it's just rocky chunky it's a hike a bike out of there never been so hot in my life um climbing out of there and then you kind of top out and descend this pretty techie descent down to molino basin but that's kind of that whole reddington yeah. climb up toward the catalina highway is there any water resupply in that section you said you were carrying eight liters. Yeah, there is a tank, um, Italian trap tank off of the two track just after Chiba Falls, but I had heard it was dry. There was water in it last year. Um, didn't even stop. Um, there, that's where the, the Molino, and I saw, I had seen on the um, group that Molino catch was stopped. And just thank God I was able to fill up with one of the 58 gallons that was at Molino. Um, otherwise, that is one of the hardest stretches of the whole route is carrying water through there. If it wasn't that crazy hot, I might have been able to get it. There's a little spring on Green Mountain Trail, which the 300 doesn't do. The 800 goes up Green Mountain as part of the lemon push. Um, might have been able to hit that spring just fine but it was just so hot i went through all of the liquid that i had yeah yeah good to know good to know noted <laughs> yeah on the uh, 300 the 300 hits the highway there is a little like last year I, there was water in this little river kind of off the highway before the visitor's center toward the top the visitor's center before sunset trail um, before summer haven has water but I actually was so dry that I filled up the little river off the highway in the 300 last year. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely have my homework ahead of me. This is part of my homework. You're helping me with my homework. It's <laughs> going great so far. You're doing great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, man. So there was like, you know, after Reddington, it seems like this is when um, maybe the race started to develop a little bit where at least from like the dot watcher perspective that was going on, going into uh, superior at mile 300, um, from your perspective, were you in a race? Were you in race mode? Um, or were you just in your own head doing your own thing? Yeah, I kind of did get into race mode and it's probably from the amount of caffeine I had at that point. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I actually was just so spent the first three days in that heat. And when I left Summerhaven, I'm like, okay, enough food to hit picket post. Like, that's what I did last year. And, of course, I have to go another quite a ways past picket post to the next resupply. I mean, there's resupply. At, you could get food at Queen Valley, which is only a couple hours past picket post. But I had zero left at picket post at Superior at the finish. 
So I actually had zero before that. I ran out of solid food at the ADOT spigot where you hit the Gila River. It's like, okay, I have a ton of this flow formulas drink mix left with caffeine. Like, this is enough to get me to Superior, which is just fine. I'll go into Superior tonight and I'll get a meal and food and whatever. It's a few miles off route. But I drank so much of that flow formulas mix that I had so much caffeine in me at the point where we're, you make a big right-hand turn to start climbing into Martinez Canyon and you're kind of climbing out of the river valley. You're just up and down to this Gila River Valley for so long and it's so hot. And I was fine. I was drinking my drink mix. I liked that stuff. It was still all good. I knew it would get me to picket post. Um, I knew that a couple other racers were down at the river. You make this right-hand turn or you can make a left and go to the river. And I wanted to go to the river so bad um, and cool off and just whatever. But, like, I'm going to make this hard right and I'm going to go try to win the 300. Like, why, why not just do it? Like, I have enough water to get to the rain collector at the top. Like, I don't need to get water out of the nasty Gila. And it was just so hot. And then, like, I, I had so much caffeine. I'm like, I don't even notice the heat anymore. Like, I feel like a hero. <laughs> and just, like, started flying up this climb. I'm like, this can't be, like, healthy. Like, I've had so much of this drink mix. Like, felt so good. And hit the rain collector. And um, Wyatt Spaulding from bikepacking was there. Take a picture. I'm like, yeah, man. Like, feels so good. I had so much caffeine. <laughs> um and then it started to fade off as we're kind of traversing toward picket post. And there's a few climbs, long traverses in there. And then I finally hit picket post to finish. John Schilling was there. The other people are there. Um, I was like, yeah, I'm out of food. Like, I got to go into Superior. And I was, it, the caffeine had wore off at this point, just feeling dead. Mm-hmm. But rode on, rode through the AZT, past that a little bit where you hit a dirt road and pretty efficient to get from this dirt road instead of going left, go right into town. Got some food, felt way better. It was like, oh, shoot, it's 9 o'clock. Like, I'm just going to stay here, let my body recover, stayed in the little motel in Superior and um, felt great that next morning. Started pedaling 5.30, 5.45 and caught back up to a bunch of the racers at um, – the Bosch is the resupplying gold Canyon. And it's kind of funny. There are four of us outside the, the building there doing our resupply and just food everywhere, bike <laughs> stuff everywhere. We're all just scrambling, packing the stuff into our bikes. And really, I really appreciate everybody else in the race at that point. I was like, this is awesome to be out here with you guys. I, well, that was going on, uh, from the dot watcher perspective, it was, it was fun. I was glued to the, to the track leaders cause Katya, um, you and a few others like stopped in superior Katya kept going and yep. put a pretty good lead on you or on the group on the field. Um, and from what I could tell from track leaders, you wouldn't catch her or catch up to her again for another 150 miles. So were you, were you surprised that? she skipped superior and kept going. I wasn't surprised. I I think she had done the 300 before. So she probably planned better than I did. And 
I didn't know there was going to be a nice little place. There's like a grassy place you could sleep in Clean Valley um, after a picket post. And I didn't know where she slept. But man, if I would have done it over, I would have made sure I had enough food to get there and slept there. And yeah, I would have been a lot more efficient. And I don't know if I would have been in front of her or not or, or what. But um, yeah, yeah, she she made the, the correct move there. That was a good move on her part. Yeah, um, I think her and I wish Alexandra. I could have done that. Uh, skip that, uh, skip superior, um, which made it, which made it a fun race. I mean, you know, from a dot watcher, I was like, holy shit, here we go. Uh, yeah. and I mean, it was just great seeing Katya like leading the AZT for, for quite some time. I mean, she, she really, uh, you know, put in an amazing effort and it was fun to watch. Oh, yeah. Uh, were you worried that you wouldn't catch her? Like, how how much were you concerned about what other racers were doing? Maybe specifically in this instant instance, like were you worried that you wouldn't catch her again, um, or were you just trying to stay in your race? I was just staying in my race. I knew I still had to take care of myself, and I was. It, there's still a lot ton of race left at that point. Like a ton yeah. can happen. Um, I wasn't trying to push it. I was just trying to. I mean, I'm definitely pushing it, but I wasn't like stressed out about somebody's way off the front or this guy or whatever. Um, I'm trying to like stay in there and like still make it achievable. Um, but at the same time, I'm just, you know, I was, I was there to finish still at that point. Um, not like, Oh, I, I want to be off the front or whatever. I mean, yeah, I'd be sweet, but, um, just knew that I had to make the right moves there. Like just getting the finish was going to be a struggle. It's um, funny the caffeine wore off. You're out of race mode, and now you just want to finish again. <laughs> yeah, kidding. yeah. Well, it's kind of <laughs> like I had this goal as like, well, shoot, like I could beat them to picket post and and win the 300 two years in a row. What well, I mean, it's a different course kind of now, but the 800 is a little harder anyway. But um, so I was like, yeah, I was in race mode there, and now I'm just like, okay, now it's like another 500 miles of racing. <laughs> Yeah. to the 800 finish so just back i guess you did celebrate with some food and uh and a nap at a hotel so that's that's a good way to celebrate a 300 and then keep on going yeah yeah it yeah. wasn't it it would have been a, a smarter move a better move to keep going like katia did and great job to her i i wish that i had that planning beforehand um or the strength to do it i don't one one or the other or both <laughs> Um, or the other both, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. The hotel in Superior just might have allowed me to feel really good, like I did the last three, four days, and just made right. some huge moves there. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the way it goes. I mean, it's a long race, and you don't know how it's all going to play out. But that's kind of the fun of it. Is all right. He got twelve hours or ten hours of sleep, and uh, how is that going to pay off later uh, in the dividends? So. Um, it turned right. out to work out right for you. Did you and Katya have any, uh, did y'all ride together much? Like whenever you caught up to her, did y'all chat much? Um, or what was the, it's always interesting to know like what the dynamics like whenever you're kind of in a race, but it's also, you have, you know, 200, 300 miles left and you're like, Hey, haven't seen anyone in a while. <laughs> like, what yeah. was that like? Uh, no, it was really good to see her. I think I ran into her after the descent into Sunflower, just after Sycamore Creek. Um, 
and I was I saw her around you know a couple corners and like, oh, yay <laughs> finally somebody else in the race you know mm-hmm. um and we chatted a little bit um I think she was stopped and just good to talk to somebody you know like I don't I don't really care I'll stop and chat with somebody for a while and uh but eventually you're like hey well I guess I'm gonna keep rolling I gotta go you know or urgency starts to creep in <laughs> and then uh there was a little gap that formed between me and her after that we didn't really ride together she was stopped at the time um but um she caught back up at Payson as I was getting food and resupplying at the Basha's, the grocery store there. And I actually saw her, she had her bike in the cart area and I had just brought mine right into the little food area where you sit down and eat. There was like nobody in this store. It was like eight at night. Nobody cared. I had my stuff plugged in stuff just sprawled out over this little dining area. People were like, what are you doing? Oh, that's awesome. And nobody, nobody cared. I had everything all over. So then I saw her out there and I'm like, Hey, like just bring your, you can bring your bike in over here. Like there's, there's plenty of space. So we both had our bikes, like all the stuff just sprawled out all over the dining area at the grocery store. And, uh, we chatted a bit there, you know, I'm stuffing food in my face and, um she's organizing whatever but i don't know it was maybe a half hour chatting there and just letting stuff charge and we were talking about what i what i was gonna do what she was gonna do i was like well i'm hitting pine trailhead tonight it's like i just had a a starbucks double shot and i'm (laughs) headed out (laughs) i'm i'm going to do it and i think that convinced her to go hit it which i haven't talked been able to talk to her much afterward but I think she might have regretted going out and doing it. I think she slept a little bit before there, but I felt great that night and hit Pine Trailhead and kept going up to like a little high point. There's a little nice sandy spot at kind of the top there and I slept and I didn't see her or anyone. Yeah, I don't think I saw anyone (laughs) after that. What's that? I said ever again <laughs> until yeah. uh, the the end. Yeah, I think I think that's the way it went. So like, yeah, uh, I think like by Flagstaff, which was is at mile six hundred, you had about a fifty mile lead on on the rest of the field. Um, I'm wondering, like, um, you know, is it is it easier? Is it harder? Is it more enjoyable? Whatever to be chasing or to be at the lead? Like, I guess, which one has more pressure? Which one do you like the best? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess I like leading it. (laughs) Who doesn't, right? (laughs) Good answer. Being at the front's Um, pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I was thinking about maybe staying somewhere in Flagstaff that night but it ended up being like 2 3 a.m by the time i really hit got close to the highway there at flag and i was like there's a sandy spot here i'm just taking a two three hour nap and i'm gonna go hit the cafe when they open at six and get my food and hit the gas station and pretty be pretty efficient and get out but bike wasn't really shifting at all at that point i had to kick the derailleur 
to get it to actually go down, to get it to move. The cable was just so gummed up. Um, so I actually stopped the gas station. It was a little bit longer stop than I wanted. Um, but I knew people were coming still, so I wanted to be efficient. But bought a, a can of spray lube at the gas station, sprayed as much into the housing at either end as I could, tipped the bike upside down, got some movement again, um, set the cable back up. And now I, I could dump like four gears and it would go down instead of me having to kick it. And then nice. I'd have to go up from there to get it back into like the second one down from the top. And it's still, it wouldn't want to go down from the granny gear. So I had to set the limit a, limit a little bit where it would be just barely enough to get into the granny and it would keep it off of it enough where it would then go down. So sometimes I couldn't get into the granny gear quick enough for a climb in those San Francisco mountains peaks. And some other climbs after that, I was only in the second one. It was just so steep. I'm like, okay, just whatever. Like, don't even stress about it. Get off, hike. Like, don't break a chain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't break a chain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't need a major mechanical. Uh, I mean, that. yeah, that's a that's a mechanical problem, but it's it's you're still riding your bike. It's just a pain in the ass. But losing a chain, that's a, that's a non-starter. Um, yeah. By the time you got to Grand Canyon, which is at mile 700, you still had a 50 mile lead on Phillip. Um, I'm curious like how you were feeling dropping into the Grand Canyon for the first time. At some point, did you start to like, man, I can win this? Uh, did you start to lean into that or did you just, I'm, you know, I'm curious, like what's it like to have a 50 mile lead and you're about to strap your bike on your back and drop it in the grand Canyon. Like that's just gotta be like a surreal moment in life, you know? Yeah, kind of was, I felt kind of like a machine. Actually. I just, I had the pack ready to go. I knew right. What buckle went where, where this strap went, just, um, just, knew I had one goal, get the bike on the pack and get the heck down there. <laughs> so I think, uh, so I picked up my pack at the visitor's center at Tucson. I didn't ride with it the whole time. I couldn't really wanted to, but I just couldn't get it adjusted quite right. It was the Osprey Stratos 24. I couldn't get it adjusted quite right where it wouldn't hit me in the back of the head on some descents. And I'm like, I can't ride 700 miles like this. Maybe I can figure it out in the future, but it, the way I timed it, I hit Tucson just before midnight, hit the taco joint that was still open that night when I rolled in, got a, um, four hours of sleep in a hotel there. And there, so there are two hotels, Superior and Tucson, uh, just because it made sense. It was so cold, and I'm like, I have to wait till 9 until the visitor center opens for the pack. And I'm like staring in the doors of the visitor center at 8.30 like, open this door. <laughs> they opened it right at nine. I got the box, got the pack, fresh socks, pair of shoes to hike in. Um, and I think I dropped into the Canyon just before 11. So it was pretty efficient to got the pack pedaled to the, the portage point, got the bike mounted up. And I felt like I made good time down the Phantom ranch at the bottom. I think I made it three, three and a half hours and drank four lemonades at Phantom ranch. They have a little um, bar concession stand there. And uh, 
proceeded on just the long, like meandering North Kaibab just kind of follows the river Creek there. And so you really, then you get to the end of it and you look up and you're like, wow, <laughs> there's the switchbacks. <laughs> there's the switchbacks. What, uh, what was this pack that you were using and, and how did you, uh, alter it or whatever to get it to work with, uh, with a bike? You didn't really alter it at all. It just had some straps on the side that kind of like set the bike where I wanted it. Like I attached one to like the top tube and one to like the non-drive chain stay. And that kind of got it centered where I wanted it. And then I just had like gear straps, ties that went through the frame. I think again, like one to the top tube that really cinched it down. They were like flexible, so they got tight and went into a hole and wrapped around. And then one to the chainstay again, maybe one to like uh, part of the down tube. And that kind of kept the bike from moving. And then I, to move the handlebars so that the bar bag, my handlebar bag wouldn't hit, I just used like a gear tie to, on the handlebars to kind of pull them back the other way. And that worked pretty well. <clears throat> and then just some straps, strap my front wheel. The rear wheel was in the air, um, drive side out. And the front wheel is attached to the, close to the rear wheel and the helmet just strapped on to the back. I threw my day riding, my regular pack into my um, Osprey pack and cinched the bike down on top of that. Had a bunch of snacks in there for the ride from North Rim after I was done to the finish. Um, and yeah. yeah, when I hit, hit North Rim, I just threw the Osprey pack by the dumpster, threw on my day riding pack and someone got a nice Osprey <laughs> pack, but I didn't really care at that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wild. I wonder if we'll ever find out who someone's going to listen to this podcast pick. Oh, that's where it came from. Thank yeah. you, Alex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, an Osprey pack with with a history and uh, yeah, right. a, a cool a cool history too. Uh, how much did that pack weigh? Any idea what your setup uh, weighed and and how well did that setup perform? I mean, you know, this is something super unique to AZT is hiking with a bike on your back. So, yeah, I didn't weigh it. I didn't weigh anything. Um, I kind of would like to, but it just seems like. It's all I can do just to get my gear squared away, get the whole bike serviced, like get everything packed, just get ready for this race. It's like, I don't even care. I'm not even going to set the scale up and set it on it. So I never do. Um, it had to be close to 50. I, I'd just throw in a number out there, though. I really don't know. It was dang heavy. <laughs> yeah. Um, heavier than anything I'd ever want to take backpacking. Um, I mean, shoulders definitely hurt from the pack but that actually wasn't the worst part the worst part on the switchbacks was the feet maybe it was just that i didn't wear the shoes enough beforehand i actually bought them at the thrift store in moab on the way down oh. um but they were like nice i was like these things fit amazing i'm gonna wear these other than my old pair of tennis shoes i was gonna wear i wore those it might have been a bad decision but my feet made it. They're still recovering. There's still some raw skin, but um, it worked out. And I, I yeah. kept the shoes. I did throw the shoes in my in my day, my regular pack. Um, so you weren't that mad at them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did you think about the Grand Canyon section? I mean, uh, I mean, everybody has to do it whether they want to or not. But did you enjoy that section, or did you 
would you rather be riding your bike instead of carrying it <laughs> through the Grand Canyon? I enjoyed it to an extent. Of course, I'd rather be riding my bike, but it's just so unique to think about you have to get through the Grand Canyon to do this race like that is part of it. And whether you embrace that or not, like that's part of the race and like, just do it. It's like, yeah, of course I'd rather be pedaling my bike and there's some trail through the Grand Canyon that would be fun on a mountain bike. And oh, I was just man. like, wow, this trail would be fun to ride, but it's just part of it. It's like, figure it out, embrace it and embrace how hard it is. And like, that's just part of getting through it. Part of the puzzle. Part of the yeah. puzzle. I, I, what, I like uh, it. I like it. Yeah. In the end. Right. Yeah. It makes it's cool. It's unique. It's 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 very cool to you got to go across Arizona and the Grand Canyon's in Arizona and this is the way to get across. So it is what it is. And I, you know, love it or hate it. I think everyone probably actually loves it. You know, it, it is what that race is. So you can't can't separate the two. Right. Let's talk. Um, let's talk your highs and your lows. Uh, what was your favorite moment or section on the course, and what was the hardest or more more challenging uh, part of the course or moment? Oh, my low has to be. There's two lows, and it's it's got to be that one where I just had cramps and just couldn't keep going on the lemon push and just had to make a recovery. And the next one, the Gila River, just up and down and just crazy heat. Just when is this going to end when I was running out of solid food and I just had the flow formulas. Um, high point, probably riding from Pine Trailhead or just above it toward Mogollon Rim and hitting Flagstaff in that same day. It's probably like my biggest push in one day, but I also just felt amazing like i felt i was enjoying the trail the trail was fun like it was so much single track um it was then in a totally different environment you go from like desert environment to like thick forest this thick pine forest and um it's cool out um just everything changed so much and i was just so stoked to be there and like i love where i am right now <laughs> like I'm going to hit, um, flag tonight. Like I was, I love the, how the trail rode by flag. Um, that has to be the high point just making that huge push. And it's not like there is like special scenery there. I mean, climbing up the Mogollon rim, you're kind of looking out and you're like, everything looks green and there's these huge hills, mountains you can see that are not green. Um, but mostly just being in this thick forest with this trail, I could just find the flow on and just kept playing the hammer down. Yeah. Sounds beautiful. I love the, it's one thing that attracts me to that area is just the diversity of, you know, ecosystems and terrain. And, uh, it's just, yeah, it's beautiful. It's unique, challenging. It's going to be hot. It's going to be cold, technical, flowy. Like it sounds pretty epic. You know, I can't wait to get yeah. out there. What's uh what's next for you? Uh, you mentioned Tour Divide earlier on in the conversation. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to hear like what your thoughts are with Tour Divide, or um, you also mentioned you're going to be doing the Colorado Trail again. So what do you got? What do you got on your radar? 
Yeah, it, it's probably leaning toward more bike packing focused. Um, I guess I'm pretty stoked about the bike packing side of things right now. Um, Tour Divide has been on my radar for a long time. It's, as you know, there's a lot of factors that got to come together. I currently got to even throw a bike together for it. Um, I'm not going to ride a full suspension on that. I think it'd be too tedious. Um, How tall are you? We'll yeah. just switch bikes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'll, I'll borrow it. yours for the AZT. You can borrow mine for the Tour Divide. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Perfect. Nice. Um, I got three full suspension bikes you could borrow if you want. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I um, came to the right place. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got to figure a bike out. I got to build a bike. Um, got to figure out with work. There's a lot of things got to happen. But yeah, it's yeah. it's if it doesn't happen next year, the Triple Crown is going to happen the next the following year. I'm doing everything I can to try to make it happen next year. I really want to. Um, but a lot of things got to come together in life. Um, yeah. the CTR will definitely, uh, that'll happen pretty much all the time. I, that's a race I would always go back to. Um, it's, yeah. I mean, it's still huge, but it's more, it's less of a commitment than AZT I'll say, but, and I feel, I just love Colorado and it's a trail I'll always go back to and ride. So I'll, I'll be at a lot of CTRs. Um, that's probably my next huge goal but tour if i can fit tour divide in before that next june i'm totally going to try to squeeze it in there i got a ton of work to do and a ton of research to do but try to yeah. make it happen yeah it's a huge huge just uh monumental uh challenge to even logistically get to the start line for each one of them and then to actually finish each one is just you know an incredible accomplishment and uh, i think we could almost call this year the year of the uh, triple crown you know it just there's so many people that were out uh for the triple crown this year and uh quite a few completed it which was just fucking awesome you know congratulations to everybody that had a great year out there doing their triple crowns i'm i'm curious for you were you was the triple crown kind of always on your radar or did this year with all the triple crown talk uh kind of percolate that and make you like oh i think i want to do that too yeah, yeah. Congratulations to everybody that did the Triple Crown this year. It was amazing to see all of that go down. And yeah. and people set records on the AZT at the same time, more than just the record I did. Um, but yeah, it's it's always been on my radar, and I've been telling myself for the past year, it's got to happen before 2025. Um, now it's kind of like seeing all this happen. It's like, I got to make this happen somehow. So yeah. it's, it's even more at the front of things to, to make this happen. And so I'm pretty motivated to work toward it for next year. Um, it's going to happen at some point, but um, a lot of things got to come together. But yeah, I will say it's seeing everybody out there this year, being with them on course has definitely upped my motivation to get it done. Yeah. Awesome. Well, congrats, man. Uh, congrats on an amazing AZT. Uh, you, your fat, you, you said an FKT, which is exciting. Uh, last year, Nate said an FKT. And so it'll be interesting. Uh, people are getting fast out there. Um, but you know, it was a great run and yeah, man, I, I really just appreciate you coming on the podcast and, uh, talking to me about it. It's always a pleasure to kind of hear how it actually went. And, um, yeah, thanks for coming on, man. 
yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Um, glad I could be part of the experience and yeah, congratulations to everybody that was out there. It was amazing sharing the trail with all of you and, uh, yeah. hopefully I'll see everybody at the next one in the future. I bet you will. I bet you will. <laughs> I, uh, I hope to be able to tell some more stories. We'll see. There's so many stories coming out of the AZT and, and just a triple crown at large. So, um, I'm hoping to snag some more interviews, but yeah, Definitely appreciate you adding your yeah. voice uh, to the list. And um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, man. Get some rest, get some calories, uh, enjoy it. And and uh, hopefully, yeah, it'll be cool to see you do the Triple Crown next year if you can take a stab at it. But if not, it'll still be there. You know, 2025, it's still going to be there. Yep. Yep. It's, it's happening one of these years. Hell yeah, dude. Well, congratulations, my friend. It was good chatting with you. Take care. Thanks, Patrick. Now go ride your damn bike. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> All right, later, man. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. And thanks and congratulations again to Alex Schultz for uh, coming on the podcast and winning the AZT 800 and setting a new FKT. I have a feeling we're going to see his name uh, pop up again uh, in the near future on some of these bike pack racing events. And I'm looking forward to it. Well, I teased it at the beginning of the episode and I teased it during today's episode and I've been talking about it since last year, but it's for real this time. Next year, I'm going to be taking on the AZT 300 and it happened organically. I was talking to my friend Brett Stepanik and he was planning his own ITT around the same time this coming spring to do an ITT of the 800 mile version. And so we got to talking and I was like, man, it would be really cool to do like a group start and try to get a bunch of friends to go and do it with us because we all agree bikepacking and even bikepack racing is better with friends. I don't have all the details yet, but here's what I can tell you. Brett and I are planning to start our ITT on April the 11th, 2024. And we are going to open up an invitation for anyone to join us really. This has been approved by John Schilling, who is the race director for the AZT. This is not in any way an organized event by Bikes for Death, by Patrick, or by Brett, or anybody else. Uh, Brett and I are going to go ride the AZT. We're going to show up on April the 11th, and we're both going to do our rides. And if anyone out there would like to join us, we wouldn't mind the company, and it'd be cool to have some other folks out there doing it with us. More details on that to come, but I wanted to at least put the dates out there, and if anybody's interested, uh, you can mark that on your calendar. And the other thing you can do is go to the AZT website and freshen up on the rules, freshen up on the route, and they have an FAQ section, and it has everything you need to know to be a good steward of the AZTR and uh, get yourself prepared if you're thinking about joining us. So I'll just make one quick note on my personal uh, attempt for the 300 this year. Um, you may be aware that I was planning to do an ITT in the fall of this year, uh, but I had to make a decision essentially between doing an ITT of the Central Texas Showdown route and then hosting that event um, versus doing an ITT on the AZT. and. So I just couldn't make it all fit essentially. And I made a choice and I went with the CTS, but 
but hopefully that just prepares me even more for the AZT and I'm going to be doing some other things to get ready for that. So uh, that's going to be a big focus for me getting ready for the AZT 300 in April next year. And of course, I'm going to be taking y'all along for the ride in one way or another. So anyway, mark it on your calendars. If you got questions, you can DM me on Instagram. You can also send me an email at bikes at bikesordeath.com. But like I said, I don't have a lot of details right now. It's a date. It's on the calendar. And we're going to ride our damn bikes. What else do you need to know? All right. Well, last week, I said that next week's episode is going to be with Kurt Refsnyder and uh, pulled a little switcheroo on you. That happens sometimes. Uh, but no fear. Kurt is, I believe, coming on the podcast next week. So until then... If you're enjoying these episodes and you want to help us produce them, you can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. We appreciate all the help we can get to produce this independent podcast and we can't do it without your help. But most importantly, we thank you for being here until next week. You know what to do. Go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you awake. The sounds they made kept you afraid. In the morning, you packed your bike. Memories forgotten from the previous night. You rode faster than ever before. Was it your imagination or merely folklore? Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless, your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself, just a few more miles. Bikes, more death. Bikes, more death.